0: Welcome to the Hedgemaker broadcast. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied to the nation of Israel many long years ago. Ye have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. He also said that the Lord sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries, located in beautiful Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, is attempting to stand in the gap and make up the hedge in these days of spiritual compromise and theological apostasy. Our biblical and historical Christian heritage challenges us to fill in the gaps left by those who have moved away from their biblical foundation. Listen now as we build up the wall and make up the hedge through sound preaching from God's Holy Word. This is a part two of the message that we preached two weeks ago. So let me go back to verse 27 and read that section that we preached already about the servant's Messiah, and then we'll pick on the verses 31 through 33 to be our message tonight. But reading in Mark 8, Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and by the way he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And the answer, John the Baptist, some say, but some say Elias, and others, one of the prophets, he saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And, of course, Peter gives the correct answer. Peter answered and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. That's the New Testament word for Messiah. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. Then verse 31, and he began to teach them. And We're suggesting one of the reasons that he charged them not to tell because they didn't quite fully understand what it meant to be a Messiah. So he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly, and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples... He rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. We want to continue looking at this Messiah tonight, and I want to compare God's Messiah with man's Messiah. God's Messiah, of course, is the way that the Lord is presenting himself. Man's Messiah is the way that Peter is rebuking the Lord. So, first of all, God's Messiah. He, since he's teaching them about the Messiah, we'll look at the beginning of that teaching, the necessity for that teaching, and the content of that teaching under God's Messiah. And, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is God's Messiah. He is the Promised One. the Christ, or Christos, and the Hebrew word Mashiach means anointed one, so he's the one chosen of God and, and consequently anointed to be the Son of God. Now, the disciples, of course, had made this profound, and Peter's speaking for them, but I think they're all making the same profession, a profound profession, that Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the Son of the living God. Or Mark doesn't record it that way. It just says that Peter said, Thou art the Christ. I believe it was Matthew that added the phrase, the Son of the living God. Uh, so that's the full confession that Peter makes on behalf of the disciples. So at this point, the Lord launches a new stage. He begins to indoctrinate them into the way of God's Messiah, for God's Messiah was not man's Messiah. He began to teach them, it says, and this is significant. Matthew says, from that time forth. We're in the middle of his ministry. But from this time that the disciples make this profound profession about Jesus, they now, beyond question, agree that he is the the Messiah. Maybe there was some question up to this point. And so the Lord reveals with a powerful thrust that the Son of the living God, as Matthew records, was going to be killed and then rise again from the dead. Rejected of the elders, of course, that's all in there too. Killed, and then rise again the third day. I don't know if this is the first time that the Lord mentions his resurrection, but he does this several times, preparing his disciples for the resurrection. Now, this concept of a Messiah dying is just going to be foreign to the disciples' thinking, to anybody's thinking. Although it was predicted in the Old Testament, there were hints of it, but not, I don't know if we could say out and out, this is what's going to happen. So the Lord took them aside and began to teach them that the Son of Man would suffer these things, be rejected of men. You can go back to Isaiah 53 and you can see it now after the fact. The Jews today still misinterpret Isaiah 53 because they do not apply it to the Lord Jesus Christ. They apply it to the nation as a whole, that the nation was rejected, so it's it's still misapplied. I don't know how the disciples applied that passage of Scripture prior to the Lord teaching them about it, but nonetheless, he would be killed and would rise again. And this has just got to be a strange teaching for them, even though the Old Testament, let's at least say, hinted at it, prophesied it. So the Lord telling his disciples about his death and resurrection. Now, according to my notes here that I'm reading, this had been reported to the disciples before. So they shouldn't have been taken by surprise about it. But if you put yourselves into their sandals, and the Lord predicting that he was going to die, Jesus is asking his disciples, so who's, who, who do people say that I am? They gave the various answers. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, answering correctly, but their concept of a Messiah, which we'll see in a moment, man's Messiah, was, was completely opposite to what the Lord was telling. Now, let's look at a couple of places. John chapter 2, verse 19, all of these actually in the Gospel of John, where these would be put into earlier years or months of the Lord's ministry, so... He evidently had already been teaching them about this. John chapter 2 and verse number 19. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And of course, you go down through this passage here, and you understand that the Lord spoke of the temple of his body, not of Herod's temple. Or how about chapter 3 and verse number 14, when he's talking to Nicodemus? He uses that Old Testament illustration of the serpent that's raised on a pole. And he says in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Well, we understand that, of course, as a picture of the cross and being put up on the pole on the cross and then, of course, dying and and being buried and rising again. But did the disciples pick that up? Probably not. So, previously, the Lord is using pictures bread, the serpent on the pole, those sorts of things. Now, he was not going to speak in um, pictures, but he would tell them directly what was going on. So this is somewhat with the Lord a new stage in Revelation revealing directly that God's Son is going to die and rise again, of course, for the sins of the whole world. So he wasn't going to be at least at this point, a conquering Messiah. One of, the, one of the things that they said in the book of Acts, the first chapter, they asked him after, even after the resurrection. Let's look at that, Acts chapter 1, and uh, verse 6, but the context, verse 4, being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith, He, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? They recognized the Old Testament was a kingdom of God with Moses and the uh, judges and then the kings and, and so forth. They also recognized that they had lost that to the various kingdoms of the world. So they asked, is this now the time when you are going to restore the kingdom? Now, that's coming, but that would be a little bit of the idea of man's Messiah, whereas God's Messiah was going to be this suffering Messiah, not a conquering Messiah, not immediately anyway. His death would be what would usher in the kingdom of God. Now, what happens in history when a king dies? Normally, his kingdom dies with it, or it's given over to somebody else. So you're going to die, and that's going to be the way the kingdom of God is going to be entered in? They just couldn't fathom that. Could not grasp that. But his death would usher in the kingdom of God. Now, let's continue. That's the beginning of the teaching. The necessity for the teaching. The Lord uses the language in verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and so forth the must of this, the necessity for this teaching. This is a strong word in the the Greek language, this must suffer. It's got some constraint to it, some necessity to it. The Lord had to suffer. There was no way to get around this, although Peter is going to say uh, this, uh, this is not the way it's going to be. It was absolutely necessary by the very nature of the case for Jesus to suffer. There was no other way to bring about this salvation. He must suffer many things, be rejected, and be killed in order for this salvation to come. Now, uh, when you think about the things that are listed here, suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders, I don't know if we fully comprehend it all. We're moving from Christmas to Easter with this thought the death of Christ on the cross, as excruciatingly painful and so forth and so on that the cross was, there was much more to his, let's call it his passion, because he's going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected of the elders and then finally killed. There's much to this, and he's doing all this for us. Now, Peter, Jesus isn't bringing all this out at this point, okay? Later apostles bring this out, that Christ died, according to the Scriptures, died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. We have this brought out later. But it's a necessity. It's also a part of his deity. That's kind of a, almost a contradiction. How is God going to die? God doesn't die. How is that going to fit? When he said it must happen it's all part of the necessity of the cross work of the lord jesus christ the lord had to leave heaven's glory heaven's majesty in order to come to this earth a corrupt earth an imperfect world to now be a servant instead of lord of all not that he ever loses that lord of all but um, as a servant paul said in the philippians who thought it not robbery be, robbery to be equal with god but took upon him the form of a servant and made himself of no reputation. All of that had to take place. Everything. The suffering, the abuse, the name-calling, the mocking. When he does get toward the cross, the beatings, the hitting, the smiting, the spitting, all of that must have taken place in order for him to suffer for our sins. The Bible uses illustrations, I forget where it is exactly, but one lady I think touched him, or touched the hem of his garment perhaps, and I think the Bible uses the language that virtue went out of him. So even that, I'm perceiving that, was a drain on him emotionally. So the suffering is more than just the physical suffering, it's the emotional suffering. So the necessity of it. The beginning of the teaching, the necessity for the teaching. Now what's the content of the teaching? The content, of course, is the fact that he has to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and rise again. So you basically have the the message of the gospel, the prediction of his death, burial, and resurrection. We again can look back on that and see that quite clearly. Clearly but never quite so clear to the disciples. It's a new experience. People don't rise from the dead. Even though we've had Elijah raising the boy from the dead and the Lord in his ministry raising uh, Jairus' daughter from the dead and things like that, all those people were raised to life again to die again. So the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is something new. And so in that sense, no one had ever risen from the dead again. We read in the, Lord, in the Lord's death that he, we physically define or uh, medically, whatever, define death as the separation of the soul spirit from the body. But the Lord spends three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Pictured, of course, by Jonah and there as a dead person. All right? So his body, soul... Lee, or rather his soul spirit leaves his body for those three days and then the resurrection would be a, reunite, a reuniting of the, that, bo- that soul spirit with the body to be raised from the dead. I don't know what to say about everybody else who was raised from the dead. Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, the Old Testament experiences. So in, in this sense, no one has been risen from the dead like Jesus was predicting. And certainly not for our sins. Okay, The disciples just really couldn't quite understand what this was all about. The disciples knew about the resurrection, so the resurrection itself wasn't a strange thing to them, but the uh, resurrection of Christ was. Let's go to Peter's response. And this is a look at the way of man's Messiah. Peter says, back in our text, Peter took him and began to rebuke him. And so the Lord, of course, teaching openly, so he's now making this plain, not speaking in the uh, pictures and symbols. Peter's responding as a natural man. All of us are natural men. And so let me give you a couple of characteristics of the natural way of thinking. Man's way... If you're outlining this, uh, Roman numeral number two would be the way of man's Messiah. Number letter A, man's way is rebellious. Man's way is rebellious. The natural man rejects God's Messiah, as the disciples do. This is a natural thing. People don't rise from the dead. God's Messiah was a Messiah who was going to not conquer the world, at least not right away, but was going to die. So the natural man rejects that. Peter said, thou art the Christ. But, in the next verses, he's saying, no, no, you're not going to die. So, what is he really saying? He's really saying, you're not the Christ. So, the natural man rejects God's Messiah. People today, they reject the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That is the crux of the gospel. And that's what people want to throw out. The message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We want another way to procure salvation, bring about a kingdom, another way besides the cross. So this is what Peter's doing. Peter is rebelling against the idea. Now he doesn't fully understand it, of course, I understand that, but but yet it's it's a, a spirit of rebellion. He didn't understand God's way of uh, to the Messiahship, that his blood would be shed for the sins of the whole world. He didn't quite grasp all that now Peter's going to catch it later let's go to 1st Peter chapter 2 when Peter finally writes his book 1st Peter chapter 2 verse 24 he says who his own self bear our sins in his body on the tree that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we are healed he caught it now <laughs> but this is a little bit later but before this, when he's rebuking the Lord, it's a spirit of rebellion. The Bible says that Peter took him, so he caught a hold of him. And we're, we're getting the impression that he began, when he began to rebuke him, that he you no, this, you're, you're mistaken here. We don't know all the details of what he might be saying to the Lord. But you know, we do that same thing, don't we? We don't physically take hold of the Lord. Sometimes people wish they could, and since they can't get a hold of the Lord they'll try to get a hold of God's people and physically persecute them, do the things that they did to the Lord. So Peter began to rebuke him. It's like saying to the Lord, God forbid that this death, burial, and resurrection should take place. Wow, that just wipes out the gospel. See what Peter's doing with that? I'm sure Peter could be zealous, but his behavior was really the way of the natural mind. He's thinking naturally. He's thinking carnally. And so man just rebels and recoils against the idea of a suffering Savior. That just doesn't make sense. We do the same thing when the Lord uses suffering in our lives to make us like the Savior. Right? We recoil from that suffering. The natural way is to back off of that. So we don't necessarily want to How should I say, preach hard and heavy against Peter here? Peter's just like us. We don't understand it, but this is the way of man's Messiah. The natural man's idea of God and God's plan for man can be seen in uh, different ways. Some think that the path of life to this Messiahship is with indulgent love. The Messiah would be a loving Messiah. And so that's the picture that many, many present of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that is true. God is love. But love sent Christ to the cross. Right? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he made his son suffer, be rejected of men, die on a cross. That's what love does. So we don't really understand love. But we think that the path to this messiahship is love. This messiah should be a great loving person. Others would say, well, it should be a path of comfort and pleasure, uh, like the presidents or the uh, uh, folks running for office and uh, trying to put a chicken in every pot and, and uh, giving you hope and and so forth with all sorts of physical things. And we know... The Bible teaches that that hope doesn't come from physical things, but from spiritual things. But let's you know, if I'm comfortable, if I'm pleasurable, uh, uh, pleased with things, then that's my Messiah. Some people vote not what's right and what's wrong, but what's going to make me comfortable. That's the way people choose churches. Uh, I don't feel comfortable in a gospel preaching church. So I'm going to go where I feel comfortable. They think that's the way of Messiah. Does death sound comfortable? No. We want our way of Messiahship. So we think that the Messiah should be one who's going to offer comfort and pleasure. Others would say that the Messiah is one who is going to offer triumph and victory and power. And reigning, this was evidently the concept that the disciples had. When will you restore the kingdom to Israel? All right, so the natural way to think is one that is a way of rebellion that rejects the Lord. Also, Jesus says in our text, Matthew or Mark 8, 33, when Peter rebuked the Lord, the Lord looked on his disciples and he rebuked Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. So the natural way, rejecting God's Messiah and accepting man's Messiah, man's way is satanic. It is not only rebellious, it is satanic. So that's letter B. Man's way is satanic. The natural man is of Satan. Jesus said, you're of the Father, the, your Father, the devil. Satan, rather, is our adversary. And here, Calling Peter Satan, get the, get thee behind me, Satan was astern, yet it was necessary. Peter was tempting Christ with the same temptation that Jesus had faced in the wilderness. Same things that the, Satan was saying to Jesus. Almost to say to Jesus, no, Peter, or no, Jesus, don't go to the cross. Just be a nice guy and, you know, finish your life and... Do your best to bring in this kingdom. That's man's way, but it's not God's way. And so Peter was, in sense, tempting the Lord like Satan was. So when we refuse to accept God's plan for life, whatever it is, whether it's the matter of salvation and we kind of make our own way of salvation or whether it's anything else, God's way, when we reject God's way, we become an adversary to God. Satan was an adversary. We oppose God's will. In essence, what Peter is saying is, Lord, I know better than you. (laughs) And I'm going to tell you, this is not the way to go. I'm wiser than God. And Peter wasn't saying that outright, but in a sense, that's what he was doing. And that's what you and I do when we reject God's way and want our own way. So man's way is rebellious. Man's way is satanic. And then... He also says, at the end of verse number 33, For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Man's way is, thirdly, in the letter C, man's way is materialistic. The natural mind, natural man rather, sets his mind on material things. It's not wrong to set your mind on material things, but not to the exclusion of spiritual things. you You know, we need to worry about—I shouldn't use the word worry, because the Lord told us not to worry—about our clothing and you know our job and so on. You can't just twiddle your thumbs and say, "Okay, well, I'm going to wait until a job pops in my lap." You got to go out and do something to you know, try to find a job. But we don't fret about those things. It's a fine line there, isn't there? The natural mind sets or natural man, sets his mind on these material things and not on the things of God. Isn't that what Paul's basically saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? And comparing the natural man with the spiritual man. It takes work for us, doesn't it? To put our mind on spiritual things. So these disciples had to rethink. Eventually they did it. I think it helped once the Holy Spirit came upon them. And there in Acts chapter 2. And they began to have the minister of the Spirit of God to help them. Jesus said he would send a comforter, a helper, so that they could understand these things. Now, what happens with the natural mind is that the natural mind is full of vanity. Let me just read, rather than us turning to these passages of Scripture, Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 7, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. In Ephesians 4.17, I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. The natural mind is a vain mind because it's concerned about material things. What happens to material things? They come and go. We're supposed to be setting our mind, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Psalm 94, verse 11, The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. Our thoughts are full of emptiness. Let me see if I can summarize these three things here. Man's way is rebellious. So what we were doing is, like Peter did, we misunderstand the truth. And when we misunderstand the truth, they didn't understand about the death, burial, and resurrection. Not at that point. So he rejected the truth. If I can't understand it, I'm going to reject it. Man's way is satanic. So what you do there is like Satan does, you reconfigure the truth. If you don't understand it, you don't reject it. Well, let's reconfigure it. no. Lord, you're not going to die. We'll figure something out here. We reconfigure the truth, and thus we pervert the truth. So now, the way of salvation is not through the death of Christ or through his blood sacrifice, but some other way. And because man's way is materialistic, what we do there is we reinvent the truth. And as a result, it's empty. It's full of vanity. So man's Messiah is not the right way to go. We need to go back to God's Messiah. God's way is so deep. It's the best way. We may not understand it like Peter misunderstood it, but let's trust God's way and go with it. This is Dr. Lee Hennise, and we want to thank you for listening to the Hedgemaker broadcast today. Most of our broadcasts are portions of a sermon that I have preached to church. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries is the preaching, teaching, and writing ministry for myself. You can visit us on the web at hedgemaker.org. And let's be encouraged to stand in the gap and make up the hedge until Jesus comes again.